Hi, everyone. I'm Kyle Bechet, and this is the AAF Exchange, a podcast from the American Action Forum, where experts provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic policy issues. Welcome, and thank you for tuning in. Welcome back to another episode of the AAF Exchange. We are again joined by Douglas Holtzakin, president of the American Action Forum, to continue our discussion of the impact and response of the COVID-19 pandemic. Doug, it's good to see you again. Always a pleasure. Thank you. How, how have you been holding up this past week? Uh, it's been a good week. Um, today's a beautiful day. It's always nice to sort of escape the heat and humidity of August. That's exactly. Nice. That's, uh, that's what I was thinking. I'm thinking that after, after work today, I'm going to be outside as much as I possibly can before the sun goes down. Good plan. So, Doug, somehow where we find ourselves in late August, the coronavirus is surging, is still present with us throughout the U.S. The economy is still is only partially open. Congress hasn't come to an agreement on the latest relief package. Oh, and we're also we're just a few months away from the general election. But let's start our discussion with the biggest news story of the week, which happens to be the post office. <laughs> I never thought I would say those words, but there, here we are. What's going on here? Uh, uh, pretty simple. Um, President Trump has for several months now been uh, arguing that uh, the large-scale mail voting that will take place in November is an invitation for fraud, with, with no particular evidence. But he's he's been prosecuting this case on Twitter and in a variety of other ways. Um, so that, that has sort of focused some attention on the mail. Uh, then, as it turns out, the post office has been removing mailboxes uh, a, a large number, thousands of them, uh, from some center cities and, um, and otherwise restructuring their operations, close down some mail sorting facilities, things like that. And the one argument is that you need to connect those dots. He's setting up the Postal Service to fail and thus guarantee that the mail-in voting is not, in fact, either adequate or accurate, or that's just business as usual. And it's the Democrats who are connecting these dots and, and you should ignore the whole thing. So that's what's going on right now. I think on Saturday, this is Thursday, on Saturday, the House Democrats are going to come back and hold a vote on a funding bill for the post office. There's a pretty good case to be made that they need some money. Even Republicans had made that case a couple of months ago. But now it's got all intertwined with this electoral issue and, and the, the vote fraud possibilities and, you know, um, Washington loves uh, a mini scandal. So here we go. Electoral politics always make things <laughs> interesting and fun. I mean, sticking with this for just a second, I mean, you've testified on this issue before, um, yes. on needs and opportunities for reforming the post office. Um, I think it was several years ago, correct me if I'm wrong. But what are your thoughts about this issue today? Like, are there opportunities to reform? Historically, there are really two kinds of reforms that get proposed with, with the post office. Um, one are changes in the core business model, which is, you know, collect first class mail and increasingly third class mail, which is where they really have a problem. They lose a ton of money on third class mail, which they have an obligation to actually carry, deliver it um, under a set of requirements like Saturday deliveries and things that may not make sense in the 21st century. And that core business operation is losing money and is a problem. And, and real reforms change that. Most discussions of reform have to do with rearranging the financial deck chairs, right? They have the same legacy pension and healthcare problems that many institutions have. So reform could be, let's let 
the taxpayer pay more of that and thus improve the, the outlook for the post office? Or let's shift that onto the workers and improve the financial outlook for the, the United States Postal Service. Or let's just stretch it out over time so today it doesn't look as bad as it used to be. My testimony was on those rearrangements of the financial debt shares where I basically went in and said, look, none of this will actually solve the problem. The problem is over here in the core business model. And you have to look at that. Gotcha. Okay, um, let's turn back to some more issues about the uh, impacts of the coronavirus. Uh, you recently revisited the issue of unemployment insurance supplement, the unemployment insurance supplement, and the president's executive order in one of your dish columns. Uh, you noted some problems with implementing the order. Could you give us some of the highlights of that? Sure. Um, the you know the backdrop is this six hundred dollar federal bonus uh, layered on top of the um, state unemployment insurance benefit. Uh, it expired uh, July thirty first. There's been no legislation to extend, replace, or otherwise deal with that. So the president decided to um, issue an executive order which directed uh, the Department of Labor and and um, the Department of Treasury to sort of get it together and the Department of Homeland Security as well to get it together and, and deliver to individuals a $400 a week federal bonus. Um, well, as it turns out, these are completely different animals. Um, the, the $600 was delivered through the state UI system. The proposal of the president would be to deliver $300 a week through the Disaster Relief Fund of FEMA. And uh, the way this would work is FEMA uh, has authority to replace things that are wiped out in disaster. So you, you knock down a bridge, you build it. You knock down a building, you replace it. Well, in this case, the argument will be, we knock down these workers' wages, let's replace them up to $300 and do that out of the disaster relief fund, which they have money in. And so that's what it would be. Um, that's three, not four. The other $100 would have to come from the state. The president's arguing that we gave the states enough money in the CARES Act, and it remains unspent that they can top up this benefit to get it to 400. To do any of this would require that the state cooperates extensively. The governor would have to set up a way to get the disaster relief money to the unemployed individuals. They would have to agree to top up the $100. And, you know, that's hardly the same thing. Uh, it will also not last very long. Um, Best guesses were five weeks at the time he signed the EO. Uh, this this week, we sort of learned that they really think it'll last about three weeks. And so you do have to start asking yourself the question, is it worth it for a state to invent a new program to funnel this money to eligible people only to have it be gone in three weeks? Um, my intuition is the answer that's no. So this isn't really going to do much. We've got to go back to the right way to fix this, which was legislation in the House and Senate. I mean, even for some states, that's got to be near impossible to make something happen in three weeks, whether it's got to go through the legislature and then it's got to, you know, the administration has to set it up. I know there's been problems even with some states having not implemented everything that was passed back in March at this point. So still true. I mean, many states have still never gotten that all sorted out. So this seems like more more positioning than reality. And mm -hmm. we'll see if any money actually goes out. Mm -hmm. What about the cliff argument? I know you in the past have been concerned about, you know, the impact of spending cliffs on both recipients and larger and the larger economy itself. Um, does the president's order prevent a cliff? And if so, does that justify the order in your mind? Well, it seems to me that um, at best it pushed the cliff off three weeks. And and so, no, I don't really think it changes any concern about that uh, in the big picture. You know, right now, I think uh, the economy is OK. 
we've, we have seen a large rise in the, the bank balances of the household sector, you know, about $2 trillion more in the bank than they had in February. Uh, there, there's been a lot of income replacement. There is some employment growth. There's been wage growth. I mean, all of the things that, that you need to maintain household spending. So for the moment, I don't have a deep concern. I think the real issue is if you shut it off entirely, roll the clock forward to November, December, do you still feel real good about that? And, and there, the, the insurance argument is, let's do something now to make sure that that's going to be okay. That's really an insurance argument. I, I don't really feel there's a guarantee that we're going to be in trouble. It's just, it's just a concern. Gotcha. Um, turning to another impact of the uh, COVID-19 pandemic, um, one of the big questions in people's minds is, will their jobs come back? Which jobs losses are permanent? Um, that seems to be an almost impossible question to answer. It uh, is a question to answer. That's why I wrote about it. <laughs> yeah, you wrote about this um, in your in your dish. I think it was Tuesday. You came up with a couple of indicators we could at least look at. Could you walk us through what those indicators might be? Yeah, the reason I did this is I have been asked this question a lot recently. There seems to be a question of the week that goes through the reporter circles, and so everyone was asking. Hey, which, which of these job losses are permanent? How many are we permanently going to lose? And, and it's important because it's much easier to temporarily lay someone off, bring them back to the same job, same skill needs. You know, they know the organization. Getting someone to move to a new firm is in and of itself sometimes uh, takes some time. To move to a new sector of the economy and sort of a new occupation. You know, you can imagine someone who is in the restaurant sector you know, any working in an Amazon fulfillment uh, center, you know, that kind of migration will take place to some extent. And, and it's it's longer, a slower, costlier process than 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 you might like. So it's worth sort of thinking, how much of that are we going to have? How long will, as a result, unemployment stay elevated somewhat? Things like that. So, um, you know, think about things that aren't going to come back. Well, number one criteria is uh, you, you can't do it remotely. And Number two criteria is exclusively indoor. So I don't think this is the time to go into the arena rock business. I mean, it just doesn't seem like my moments. I, I've been waiting, as you know, but, but not 2020. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's that's going to be the issue. And so those jobs, and 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 it's it, we laughed, but you know, think about the support that goes around. Um, just just a musical event and, you know, the roadies and the, the arena folks and concessions and, uh, you know, outside talking T-shirts and things like that. All of that gets impacted. It's got to be shifted somehow. So I think you want to you want to look at those those criteria and sort of take a look and say, all right, e even within the places we know, leisure and hospitality, there are some things who can partially move things first that we've seen restaurants do that and somewhat successfully. They can turn into a, a delivery business. They can modify. And then there's some that, you know, you just can't. I just don't see patio gambling turning into a big thing. The casino would have a problem, right? That's that's an issue. So so I just sort of flipped through the the, the big losses. And, you know, some of them, like uh, in, in healthcare, we had real big job losses for the first time. Like there are many unique aspects of what we're going through, but one of the things that stands out to me is this is the first time the healthcare sector has had to deal with a business cycle. Indeed, they are the business cycle. There's this huge decline in the use of health services. Some of them will come back, right? I, I can see, you know, outpatient um, facilities coming back. But, you know, the nursing home business, you have to think hard about what you can do with that business 
where we've had a lot of fatalities and where it's 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 indoors, it's a high risk environment, and and you can't telework it in any way, and it's it's hard to get social distancing because you have to care for people um, uh, in close quarters. So you know there it's it's things like that. But the truth is, we don't know, and um, uh, it's something everyone's going to be you know keeping an eye on uh, going forward. Mm-hmm. How should we and policymakers be thinking about the future of the economy? I think I think there there are really two things to keep in mind. You know, one, what near term things can you do to accelerate recovery uh, as much as possible? And you know, that's the debate that they're going through, and I won't belabor it. Uh, then the second piece to this is okay. Let's roll the clock forward. And suppose we're in the fall of 2021, and we've had now you know. Over a year of distress, these workers are clearly not going back to their previous job. They are trying to find some place to go. What has to be in place to help them find jobs, have the skills to to be able to do those jobs and get hired? You know, how does that how does that part of our um, support system work, and and it, and is it adequate? Historically, we haven't been great at that. Our, our you know sort of capacity for job retraining things has not been uh, super outstanding. So I think you look at that. And then I at least think that there is a case to be made uh, for some infrastructure spending uh, on the grounds that if you like if you had in July passed the bill that the Senate had passed last July, that would have been a bill not designed to meet short term needs. It would have been a a well-designed infrastructure package that would have supported the long term growth of the economy in principle, at least. So fine, you need that because it would now start kicking in in 2021, late in there, 2022, 2023. That's when that's when you want to have in place the sort of normal kinds of government support for the economy. And, and so those are the two things I'd worry about right now. Hmm. So it sounds like you're saying we did another infrastructure week. I, I'm, I'm really trying hard not to say that, Kyle. <laughs> I don't like the idea of people immediately running out to say, oh, build infrastructure, you know, recovery, that kind of stuff. But there was a case to be made that if you if you need infrastructure, then one way to deal with um, the need for response in a crisis is to do quicker something you want to do anyway, and and so that's then then there's less risk that you waste the money. Fair enough. Finally, uh, Doug, you wrote about broadband policy in a recent op-ed this week. Um, you noted that you have slightly changed your tune on this issue during the pandemic. Um, what are your thoughts? So um, four years now, we've been hearing about the digital divide, um, and, and one one aspect of that is across you know urban and rural places. And uh, AF has a, a long history of sort of looking into this um, and has a number of uh, papers on it. One of the findings has always been you can't just solve that by throwing money at it and lowering the cost of that broadband because the issue is there isn't a real demand for it, even at lower prices. They, they didn't see the value of a faster connection. They were pleased with and happy with their DSL or whatever it might have been. They weren't going to go faster than than that. Um, so that, that, that's been the position that we, we sort of have understood. The, a similar situation arises in, in some of the, the urban divides across income classes where it didn't look like just flat out subsidies would interest people enough to get them to get uh, – a high-speed connection. Two things have happened um, in, in the pandemic. Number one, um, I think people have a, perhaps a greater appreciation of the value of a high-speed connection, trying to work from home, trying to educate their kids from home. Mm-hmm. And 
uh, it, so that the, the old data might not apply. It could be that you now do have a demand for it and, and the price is too high. So it could be a, an effective way to expand that. And I think especially with the kids in the schoolwork, it would be unconscionable to have a class divide of some sort where we did a good job of educating um, the relatively affluent kids and not the, the poor kids. So, so that, that makes me think this ought to be looked at seriously. And, and my guess is Congress is going to spend more money. They're, they're really good at that. Um, let's, let's at least spend it on something where it might do some good. And, and yeah. so that's, that's the idea. Makes a lot of sense. I mean, what specific policies could Congress or other policymakers consider uh, to help with the broadband access? I think a broadband voucher is the answer. Like we have um, the, the supplemental nutrition for um, uh, the supplemental nutrition assistance program, SNAP, which is the old food stamps program. But the interesting thing about it is it used to be stamps, food stamps, and they were physical stamps and you doled them out in lieu of cash. And that's how it worked. They changed that into um, electronic uh, debit cards, essentially, that you swiped and, and paid for that way. And now you can do it online. Right. You can do this all electronically. Um, that's how we should do the broadband support. You should have um, an, you know, an online account. You're an eligible individual and you say, OK, what's the list of providers in my area? I want that one and let individuals control that money. They can get it out then as quickly as they got out the checks, which were done largely electronically through deposits and they can replenish it easily. And it strikes me as the right way to run that program. And keep the money with the with the households uh, for for broadband, you know. Other programs, you know, put it into the the telecom companies, and and then you you get into a real tracking issue. Like, did it really go for support of, of low income broadband? So keep it simple and just do it that way. Gotcha. Well, Doug, thanks for joining us again. What fun uh, activities do we have uh, planned for your socially distanced weekend? Uh, uh, something outdoors. Um, there's a, a fair amount of um, stir craziness that exists in my uh, home, and we, we, we got to get out and do something. So we're open to suggestions for a nice hike or whatever it might be, but it's time to get out. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. I'm, I mean, so, I mean, it's finally seems like the weather's starting to cooperate. Being back here in DC, I think I'm going to dust off my clubs that I haven't used in a couple of weeks now. So to um, get back out there. Hit it on the cut stuff. Good luck. <laughs> we'll see. Probably you'll be in the forest, but <laughs> go from there. Thank you again, Doug, for, for uh, tuning in with us. Take care. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Tune back in for our next episode, where our experts will provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic issues. I'd also encourage you to check out any of the links in our show notes, and also follow us on social media to learn more about AAF. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play.